This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kalam Institute. Bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Continuing uh, with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we talked about the Islam of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the conversion story of Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased with him. Towards the end of the story, I mentioned about how some of the virtues of Umar radiallahu anhu from the statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, who was there to witness the entire ordeal and the entire sequence of of events. He was able to witness and experience the situation of the Muslims before Umar radiallahu anhu accepted Islam and what the change in the culture of Makkah and how the scene changed by virtue of the conversion of Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib and Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu that when these two giants, Hamza and Umar radiallahu anhuma, when they came to Islam, how it strategically, it changed the position of the Muslims. I mentioned towards the end of that, that again, Abdullah bin Mas'ud says that we were not able to, in congregation, publicly go and pray at the Kaaba, at the Haram, without being attacked before Umar radiallahu anhu accepted Islam. And Hamza radiallahu anhu and Umar radiallahu anhu basically became the bodyguards. They would stand on either end of the Muslims as they prayed, and nobody dared attack them at that time. But it was actually Umar radiallahu anhu who insisted on this. He insisted that they go and they pray publicly. And I mentioned that towards the end of it, and I wanted to kind of start from there. Umar radiallahu anhu had a certain personality, he had a certain perspective. And a lot of times when we read about Umar radiallahu anhu and how he would talk to the Prophet wasallam and how he would insist on certain things, a lot of times, um, especially due to the storytelling factor, it can almost seem like he's somewhat defiant or insistent, when that wasn't the case at all. This was an intimate conversation between the teacher and the student, between a prophet and his follower, and between an older, like someone who was an older father or older brother type figure, and a younger brother or son-like figure. And this was a conversation that they had, and many times relationships are very unique. And personalities are very unique. And the Prophet ﷺ dealt with each person independently, individually, according to their personality. And so Umar radiallahu anhu by nature was just one who would voice, he needed to talk through his frustrations. He had to basically kind of what we say, think out loud. Umar radiallahu anhu was one of those types of people. So when he goes to the Prophet ﷺ, and this was a type of a conversation that would reoccur between Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, and the Prophet ﷺ, this conversation would occur with them many, many times throughout um, the rest of the seerah. So Umar radiallahu anhu says to the Prophet ﷺ, that don't we believe in the truth? And the Prophet of Allah ﷺ affirms, he says, yes we do. 
And he again asked the Prophet ﷺ that what they believe in, isn't it wrong? And the Prophet ﷺ affirms, he goes, yes, what they believe is wrong. Don't we have Allah on our side? And the Prophet ﷺ says, yes, most definitely we do. Then Umar anhu basically appeals, he says, O Messenger of Allah, what prevents us from then going and praying publicly? And doing what we have to do? So the Prophet ﷺ actually concurs and he says, you know, I felt that the time is also right. I feel it is also appropriate now. But you have to understand one thing. Was the Prophet ﷺ not willing to do so before? May Allah protect us all. But did the Prophet ﷺ lack courage? Some way, somehow, before Umar presented in these terms? Or Umar made his protection possible? Absolutely not. But you also have to understand that the Prophet ﷺ also put a certain burden of belief on the followers, on the ummah themselves. That a certain, we are also given a certain amount of responsibility. The lesson that we learn from this is that the deen of Allah is the deen of Allah. The Qur'an is the Qur'an, the Prophet is the Prophet. And all of that is there and all of it is true. It's the truth, as they say. But it also comes back on us. What are we willing to do? What, 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 how far are we willing to go? What are we willing to bring to the table? And the outcome will be the combination of that truth, that undeniable, unrefutable truth that is Islam, coupled with our own willingness, and our own investment within that truth. And the culmination of those two things are what you see as the manifestation of the ummah. So the ummah is a culmination of both things. And the status of the ummah, the condition. A lot of times people like to ask the question, well, we look what's going on with the ummah today. Globally, look what's going on with the ummah. Is that somehow an indictment of Islam? Or the truth of Islam? If this was the truth, then wouldn't it all just fall into place? It's a combination of two things. It's us plus that truth. Otherwise that truth is, it's the truth. It will remain in the text. It will be preserved as the truth, as long as Allah wills. But it's us and what we're willing to bring to the table. And what type of investment we're willing to make. One of the interesting things about the revelation of the Qur'an, and the tone of the revelation of the Qur'an, that the scholars of the Qur'an actually present to us, is that this is a principle, a fundamental principle of the tafsir, the explanation of the Qur'an that wherever Allah speaks in the, He addresses human beings or the believers in the masculine, He's actually addressing everyone universally, men and women, everyone is being addressed. And that's by virtue of the simple fact, linguistically speaking, that the masculine gender is actually the universal gender. So when Allah addresses the believers or mankind in the masculine, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَكَذَلِكَ نُنْجِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually addressing men and women. That's, a, that's a, an agreed upon, fundamental, undeniable principle of interpreting the Qur'an. A given. But nevertheless, we do find that some instances, some places, Allah specifically, Allah specifically mentions men and women. In al-Muslimina wal-Muslimat, wal-Mu'minina wal-Mu'minat. Some places, okay, you can, you can contribute it to the fact, you can attribute it to the fact that those are places where women are of special focus. Surah number 66, Surah Tahrim. Women are of special focus there. 
Okay, Suratul Mumtahina. Women are of special focus there. Suratul Nisa, women are of special focus. Suratul Ahzab, women are of special focus there. Because those discourses in those passages are addressing women, female related issues specifically. So that's why Allah specifically calls on them and mentions them. But there are other places in the Qur'an where that's not the case. It's still a universal address, and Allah is addressing both men and women. So what's the explanation of that? And the scholars actually explain that those verses were revealed after a certain incident. And that incident was that the women of the, of the Sahaba, the believing women of that time, actually come to the Prophet wasallam and they say, O Messenger of Allah, why doesn't Allah specifically, uniquely mention us? And the Prophet ﷺ explained to them that no, when Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, that is addressing you as well. But they said, O Messenger of Allah, we would like for Allah to specifically address us as well. Call on us as well. Make demands as of, make demands of us specifically. And the scholars explained that from that point on, when verses were revealed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called on the believing men and the believing women. And so it's a combination of two things. And so the Prophet ﷺ always was willing, and that's why it's documented in the seerah, and I've mentioned it here a number of times, that the Prophet ﷺ all throughout this beginning first five years of preaching and teaching and prophethood and nubuwa, the Prophet ﷺ had been going and praying at the Kaaba. He'd been praying there. But the, as far as the believers were concerned, he was gonna let them step up when they were ready to actually take that step. And when Umar radiallahu anhu approached the Prophet ﷺ and said, O Messenger of Allah, I feel it's time. I feel it's like something we gotta do. And the Prophet ﷺ scans the faces of the believers there in the house of Arqam, bin Abil Arqam. He scans their faces and he sees that all of them are also willing. That all of them are, are, are finding courage at this moment. And the Prophet ﷺ says, yes, let's go and do it. And so that day came when the Prophet ﷺ goes out with the believers, Hamza and Umar anhu on either side, and they march into the Haram, into the, the, to the Kaaba, and they stand up there and they pray in congregation. And everybody watches on and looks on, unable to do anything. And some of the narrations mention that some of the more, again, on the disbelieving side, on the opposition side, some of the more vocal ones, the more, the more outspoken ones, like Abu Jahl and them, that they were like, how can we let them do this? How is this even possible? Where did the, who, who told these people they, they had license to do this? But they were restrained by their also, the rest of their company, and their following, they were restrained by them that no, leave this be. This isn't a, wor- a fight worth picking. And so this was a major statement. But what this also did was, the leadership of Mecca got together, and it's mentioned in narrations that they had a meeting. They basically called an emergency council board meeting. And they said, Everybody needs to come. Everybody who's anybody in Mecca needs to be here. And so it's mentioned in narrations that Utba and Shayba, the sons of Rabi'a, Abu Sufyan was there, Nadr ibn al-Harith, um, some of the other more notable ones that we've actually even talked about. Al-Walid bin al-Mughira was there, Abu Jahl was there, Abdullah bin Abi Umayyah, 
who's an interesting character, we'll talk a little bit more about him. He's actually the cousin of the Prophet ﷺ. But he's a cousin by the paternal side. He was basically the son of one of the Prophet aunts from his father's side. So his father's sister's son. So one of his father's older sisters, one of her eldest sons was Abdullah bin Abi Umayyah. And he was also in somewhat of a position of leadership in Mecca, by virtue of being from that same family. Uh, Al-As bin Wa'il was there, Umayyah bin Khalaf, the best friend of Abu Jahl was also there, and a few others of the same stature and rank, politically, economically, socially speaking in Mecca, in Quraysh at that time, they all got together. So basically the, the 10, 12 of the top dogs of Mecca basically congregated together and they said, what do we do now? Because what we've done up until this point obviously hasn't worked. Their numbers keep increasing. He sent a bunch of them off to Africa. We chased after them and we came back with our tails between our legs. And in spite of him shipping off close to a hundred people over to Africa, his numbers here are still increasing. So now there's a hundred of them there and there's a hundred of them here. And then on top of that, aside from the early more respected people in Mecca, like very you know respected people, socially elite people, like Abu Bakr and Abdurrahman bin Auf and Uthman ibn Affan, these very respectable people had gone over to his side. But now you have some basically enforcers joining his ranks as well. Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, a great warrior of our tribe. Umar ibn Khattab, one of the people who goes to represent the Quraysh in front of other tribes. At tribal like communes and things like that. He's the one who goes to represent the Quraysh. Why? Because he's that strong intimidating figure. He's the muscle of Quraysh. They're all on his side as well now. What do we do? We've tortured his followers. We've launched campaigns against him, smear campaigns, where we try to defame him and say bad things about him. None of it is working. So what do we do? So they decide to actually go back to a strategy that they had tried previously through the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. And we've talked about it here. Where they went to Abu Talib and they said, come on, reason with your nephew. And when the, the Prophet ﷺ was summoned by his uncle Abu Talib, who he loved very dearly, the man who raised him, loved for him, cared for him. And he basically tried to say, like, why are you causing problems? They're here yelling and screaming, like, what's going on? Isn't there some peaceful way to work this out? And when the Prophet ﷺ became very emotional, he said, uncle, I'm doing what I have to do. And the Prophet ﷺ became very emotional, like, uncle, I hope you're not giving up on me. And Abu Talib said, no, 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 I'm with him 100%. Then the other thing that they had explored, that they had tried again through Abu Talib was, let's make him an offer. Let's offer him leadership. Let's offer him some money. Let's offer Abu Talib a trade. Listen, we'll give you one of our youngest and best and brightest, so you can mentor him and kind of, you know, you can groom him to be your successor. And you just hand Muhammad over to us. We've tried all these offers. But now, let's not do that. Let's just approach Muhammad directly. And tell Muhammad, basically, let's just hand him a blank check. You tell us what you would like. You tell us what you would like. And let's put something on the table that we have not put before. Let's offer to recognize his faith 
his religion as a legitimate faith in religion. Let's, let's put that on the table. So they call the Prophet ﷺ and they say that the 12 biggest leaders of Mecca are here together and we'd like to talk to you. Send them a message. After they consulted with each other, they basically said, call Muhammad. When the Prophet ﷺ was told that basically everyone who matters in Quraysh is together and they're calling for you, the Prophet ﷺ went very quickly because he was hopeful. He thought maybe they've seen the light. They're willing to believe. So the Prophet ﷺ rushes to this meeting. And they basically open by saying, and some of the narrations say that um, the, 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 the person who actually spoke was Nadr ibn al-Harith. And there's another narration that says, no, he said something very specific. But nevertheless, it's mentioned one narration that Nadr ibn al-Harith was the one who spoke. And he said, look here, Muhammad. We've never had anyone in all the major tribes of Arabia that has caused as much unrest as you have. You've insulted our forefathers, you criticize our beliefs, you make, you know, you've, you've defamed our gods, our deities, you've completely made a mockery of our way of life. And everything that's happened between us, all the misunderstandings, you are the sole reason and cause of it. We didn't cause any problems. We were all falling fine and dandy, everything was rolling just fine, everybody was happy, until you came along and decided to make all these problems. We're not sure what you want, but again, we are extending the same offer we've extended to you in the past, but this time we're extending, we're, we're basically willing to increase the terms. Number one, we'll offer you money beyond what you can even imagine. We will f not just offer you a one-time amount, we're basically willing to fix you a salary. We'll pay you till the, till the end of your years. We'll declare you to be the head of the council of Quraysh and Makkah. You'll be in charge, you're officially in charge. And we'll get basically put all of this on the table. You can have whatever you want. The Prophet of Allah responds to them, he goes, I don't want your money, I don't want your position, I don't want your leadership, I don't want any of those things. Allah has sent me with a message. He made me a messenger and He's given me a message, the Qur'an. I bring, this is what I present to you. My counteroffer is, I offer you the Qur'an, I offer you Islam. You take this. If you take this, and you believe in this, and you abide by this, then I'm here to tell you that you will reap the rewards and the blessings of Allah in this life and the next. And if you reject this, then it's between you and Allah, and Allah will settle the matter between us. If you reject me and my offer and this belief, then I turn the matter over to Allah and Allah will decide our affairs. Allah will settle it. I'm not here to make any threats. I don't have any beef personally against you. But Allah will settle the matters. Allah will be the judge. That was it. So now they basically kind of say, okay, hold on. Let's, let's come back to the table. Let's take a five minute recess. We'll come back to the table. So they kind of re, they pull over to the corner. They talk to each other and they're like, 
Alright. You know the wild card that we talked about? The wild card? We got to put that on the table now. It's time for it. To pull out the big guns. So they come back to the table and they tell the Prophet ﷺ, We know that, you know, you are insisting on either we believe or we don't believe. Uh, uh, that you're insisting that I'm not willing to take any other offer. I, no, I don't want your money. I don't want anything. You have a message and you insist on that message. Here's what we're willing to do. We'll recognize your message as a legitimate message. Before the Prophet ﷺ, or even we listening to this, reading this could think that they're basically accepting Islam. They say, however, we'll recognize your religion as completely valid. If you recognize our religion, our beliefs as completely valid. And the way we're going to do this is, one day will be the day of your religion, and the next day will be the day for our religion. One day we worship your God, we pray in your direction, we pray in your manner, and the next day, all of us together as a community, we worship and bow down in front of these idols. It's trade, equal trade, come on, equality. You work with us, we'll work with you. Give us a little, take a little. Sound, seems fair. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had already told the Prophet ﷺ, in Surah Al-Qalam, Surah number 68. And when I talked about how this was the second revelation. What do law tu dihinu? Fayudhinu. What do law tu dihinu? Fayudhinu. What they want more than anything else. Law tu If you would just be willing to bend it a little bit, to give in a little bit. Not bend or give in in what? Not, not talking about some type of like personal issue or money or finance or. No, no, no. If you'd be willing to give, to compromise on your beliefs, your fundamentals, your iman, your faith, what you believe in, if you would be willing to give in just a little bit, what they want more than anything else, is that if you're willing to give in just a little bit, فَيُدْهِنُونَ They very willingly will give in a whole lot. But they need you to bend just a little bit off the fact that Allah is one. There is a life after death. The Qur'an is the word of Allah. Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. They just need you to give in just a little bit. Just a little bit. فَيُدْهِنُونَ But Allah said, told the Prophet ﷺ, وَلَا تُطِعْ كُلَّ حَلَّافٍ مَهِينٍ But don't you dare ever do that though. Don't listen, don't obey, don't follow, don't give in. No matter how strategic it might seem, there are some things that we can't compromise on. There are some things. And this is very relevant to us because we're, we deal with this. We're a minority. Surrounded by a majority that does not believe in what we believe in. But in terms of our, 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 our etiquette, our, our cooperation in terms of social issues, morality, ethics, we're more than willing to work and cooperate with people. But the, at the end of the day, there is a line. And that line is respectfully, we see the Prophet ﷺ wasn't disrespectful. They're sitting there saying, you're trouble, you've caused problems, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. The Prophet ﷺ says, this is what I believe. If you accept it, the blessing and the reward of Allah. If you don't accept it, 
worldly wise, in this world, that is your choice, but God is the judge. And then leave it at that. But there is that line. And the same thing, it's just, we have to understand the same thing with us today. I believe what I believe. We believe in Allah. We believe in Muhammad Rasulullah. We believe in the Quran, Kitabullah. We believe in standing before Allah on the Day of Judgment. And that is what we believe. And there is no compromise in terms of that. And that's what... So now they make this offer to the Prophet ﷺ. Again, and what's very interesting is, this is something very interesting you'll see in today's lesson. The Prophet ﷺ again says, there is one Allah. I am the Messenger of Allah. I receive the Book of Allah. And we all have to be resurrected and stand before Allah. And that is my message. If you accept that and you believe that, then there is reward and blessing for you in this life and in the hereafter. If you reject that and you refuse that, or you compromise that in any way, shape or form, like how you're saying, then God will be the judge. Allah will settle the matter. And he says that and he just, he's quiet. So then they, by this time the narration mentions Ibn Ishaq, who relates this in a lot of detail. He says that basically chaos broke out in the meeting. Because they started to get frustrated. And so now they start speaking out of turn. Now their whole strategy is kind of falling apart. And their, frustrating, their frustration is starting to show. So one of them says that, okay, okay, I see how it is. If that's the case, you're not willing to budge at all, then you see how it is over here. Life is hard. We live in the desert, we live in the middle of a bunch of mountains, water is hard to come by, not a lot of vegetation grows here. Okay, if you're so right, and everything you believe is in the truth, then why don't you pray to your Lord, that He would move these mountains away from here, that He would make it rain, everything would be green and lush and beautiful. There'd be rivers flowing through here like they flow in Iraq and Syria. Because the, the, the Quraysh were businessmen, they used to travel out to Bilal al-Sham and Iraq. And they would see how rivers were flowing there and greenery and vegetation was plentiful. Why don't you ask God to make our lands like that? You know, why don't you tell? Because we'll benefit from that, you'll benefit from that, your followers will benefit from that. And if all of that happens, then we'll believe in you. Again, the Prophet ﷺ says, I understand that you're getting kind of frustrated here, but this is my message. I believe in Allah. There is one Allah, the Qur'an. I am the messenger of Allah. We have to stand and answer to Allah. If you believe, blessing and reward in this life and the next. If you don't, the rest is in Allah's hands. One of them... Now another one speaks up, getting more emotional. He says that, why don't you then also pray to your God, if you're so right and all of this is the truth, pray to your God to raise up our forefathers to testify in our behalf. And he specifically mentions Qusay bin Kilab, who is like the great, great, great grandfather of the Prophet wasallam. He says, why don't you ask him to resurrect him? Because Qusay bin Kilab was one of the ones who basically established Quraysh as a power within Arabia. 
He was one of the ones who was instrumental in establishing Quraysh as a power in Arabia. And he was actually, he was able to do that because of his reputation amongst the, the Arab, the people of Arabia. He was known as someone who was very truthful, very honest, very moral, very ethical. And by virtue of it, basically because of his virtue, and his virtuous reputation amongst his people, he was able to establish Quraysh as a power in Arabia. So that's why they mentioned his name. And some of the other narrations mentioned that they even kind of taunted the Prophet ﷺ. That if you were anything like your forefather, Qusay bin Kilab, you wouldn't be doing this. But what, in that moment, uh, in that, in that moment where they became frustrated and emotional, what they failed to understand was, before the Prophet ﷺ preached his message, he would often be likened to his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, and he was often likened to his great-great-grandfather, Qusay bin Kilab. Why? Because the qualities of the Prophet ﷺ that he was known by were what? The Prophet ﷺ was known as being dependable, reliable, truthful, and was known as being somebody who was extremely trustworthy. So the, again, in that emotional moment, they're basically trying to emotionally blackmail the Prophet ﷺ, but it doesn't even make sense. Because the Prophet ﷺ is the most truthful amongst them. And so he does resemble his great-great-grandfather, Qusay bin Kilab, in his character. And from here now, they just started becoming just flat out unreasonable. One of them started to say that if this is the truth, and Allah mentions this in the Quran, in Surah Al-Anfal, ayah number 32, that God, they started looking up at the sky. One of them looks up at the sky during this meeting and says, God, Allah, this God that Muhammad calls to Allah, that if what this man says is the truth, then let it rain down stones from the sky. Or bring some great punishment down on us for not believing. So they started blaspheming and speaking in this way. One of them started to say that, we'll only believe in you if you can go up to the sky, come back down with God Himself, with Allah Himself, and a whole army of angels, then we'll believe in you. One of them said that, no, we'll never believe in you. One of them started to scream, no, these angels, they are the daughters of God. And we believe, we pray, we worship these angels who are the daughters of God. One of them started to say that, no, 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 you're just a big liar. You keep quoting this Ar-Rahman. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. You keep quoting this Ar-Rahman. This Ar-Rahman is a man from Yamama. This is a man from northern Arabia by a place called Yamama. And you went there and you bring all these words from this man called Ar-Rahman. And they just started lashing out and speaking just completely irrationally. The Prophet ﷺ was sitting there quietly. He'd responded three, four times very calmly, very respectfully with integrity. But he started to realize that this is pointless. They're just lashing out now. So the Prophet ﷺ said, I understand, you've said what you had to say, I've said what I have to say, there's really not much else for us to talk about right now, right here, so I'm gonna get going. Thank you very much for your time, I have to go. And the narration says the Prophet ﷺ got up and respectfully exited, started to leave. His cousin who was there in the meeting, Abdullah bin Abi Umayyah, came up to the Prophet ﷺ, walked out with him like, oh, I'm gonna go walk him out. And he came up and started walking with the Prophet ﷺ. 
The Prophet ﷺ thought, you know, some family members, like Hamza, Ali ibn Abi Talib, it's said by, by this time, it's also mentioned in some narrations, that by this time even one or two of his aunts had believed in him, but were keeping their iman private and secret. Abbas radiallahu anhu, the uncle of the Prophet hadn't believed yet, but the narrations mentioned that he was still contemplating it, he was thinking about it. Abu Talib was of course fully supporting it, hadn't believed but was fully supporting. So the Prophet figured maybe, you know, he's, something's clicked. So he starts walking with the Prophet kind of puts an arm around his shoulder, but has a completely different message. He said, Muhammad, he said, your people have made some very good offers to you. They've made some very reasonable offers. But you keep refusing. You keep refusing. They asked you very reasonably that if you don't, if you're not willing to compromise, then do something, establish something, show something that clearly establishes the fact that you're right and they're wrong. That's all they're asking for. But you say, oh, I leave it to God, I leave it to Allah. You even refused things that they were willing to offer you that would have only established you further, that could have helped you propagate your religion if that's what you wanted. But again, you said, no, what Allah has given me is enough. You're being very stubborn here. You're being very unreasonable here. You can see how when, when, when a person's heart is corrupted, when a person's intentions are not straight, something so irrational like what they were saying, something so ridiculous and nonsensical like their demands of the Prophet ﷺ, can seem so rational to the person himself. That he says now, he says, O oh Muhammad, by God, by Allah, I will never believe in you. I will never accept what you have to say. You need to also understand that. You don't want to compromise? Well, guess what? I don't want to compromise. I'll never believe in you. You could bring a ladder that goes all the way up to the sky. And in front of my very eyes, you could climb all the way up to the sky, and you could come back down with four angels, all testifying that what you say is the truth, but even then, I will not believe in you. This is a fight now. And we're gonna fight it out. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ, very quietly, respectfully, walked off. And so now this was basically Quraysh's last attempt to try to rationalize the situation. What they were worried about now, was the fact that, look, Muhammad's, the number of followers continues to grow. Prominent people continue to join his ranks. We keep making offer, and after, offer after offer, basically humiliating ourselves, not standing for anything at this point, be willing to compromise even what we claim to at least believe in. But Muhammad is unwavering in his convictions, in his beliefs. And this is even more inspiring and more convincing to the people who are willing to listen to him. What do we do? By the time that meeting concluded, Abu Jahl who was there the entire time, of course not happy with all these proceedings, because Abu Jahl was Abu Jahl, we've talked about Abu Jahl before. 
Abu Jahl only knew one way how to handle these things, and that's why he's called Abu Jahl. He says, "Just you, 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 basically are 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 handling. You're, you're conducting yourself with some amount of dignity and honor and respect. You have to be ignorant in your approach." And so Abu Jahl tells them, he says, "You did you you did what you wanted to do." I wasn't on board with it, but I sat here quietly, I shut my mouth, I didn't lash out because you said give you a chance and give your strategy a chance. What did it get you? It didn't get you anything. So why don't we do this now? Why don't we try my strategy? I need one thing from you. I need all of you to swear here to me right now that you guarantee to me and you promise me your full support and your full protection. And they said, well, what are you talking about doing? He says, look, Muhammad every single day, sallallahu alayhi wa every single day he comes to the haram, he comes to the Kaaba and he prays there. In our faces, rubs it in our faces, he comes and prays there every day. And when he prays, he bows down on the ground. Tomorrow when he comes in to pray, I'm gonna get a big rock and I'm basically gonna smash his head and kill him. End of story. I'm going to do that. But the reason why we haven't done that yet is Banu Abd Munaf, Banu Hashim, the family of the Prophet ﷺ, will basically come after whoever harms him as retribution. Abu Talib has guaranteed as much. But you guys here are influential and powerful enough to where if you stand with me, we might be risking a little bit of civil unrest, a little small-scale civil war amongst Quraysh. But if all of you stand with me, then m- most of his family members might even be hesitant to take up arms against all of us. And the few that are willing to will easily defeat them. I, that's all I need you to do. Stand with me. And before they all left that meeting, they were so angry and frustrated that they all said, we're with you. You do what you got to do. So the narration mentions Ibn Isham, Ibn Ishaq, the classical historians, scholars of the seerah, they mention, the next day when the Prophet and this is going to sound very similar to the story of Irashi, Qissatul Irashi, which I mentioned a few sessions ago. That the next day when the Prophet came in in the morning, came to pray at the Haram, at the Kaaba. And the Prophet ﷺ went down in sujood. Or the narration mentions that from even before when the Prophet ﷺ came in, Abu Jahl went, found the biggest rock that he could find, came and put it down next to him and sat down. When the Prophet ﷺ walked in, he kind of looked over, made eye contact with the rest of everybody else who was there in that meeting, the council, the high council of Quraysh, of Mecca. He made eye contact with all of them. All of them kind of nodded back at him and kind of sat in their places. And then as soon as the Prophet ﷺ went down in sujood, Abu Jahl picked up the rock, walked over to the Prophet ﷺ. And he held the rock up above his head and was about to step forward and bring it smashing down on the head of the Prophet ﷺ. And he just went pale. And his knees started to shake. And he pulled the rock back down and just walked backwards from there. Not even turn around. He walked backwards from there. And he sat down and put the rock back down next to him. And he just kind of sat down and looked down. Not making eye contact with anyone. And everyone's just sitting there watching this whole scene. 
wondering what has happened. And the Prophet ﷺ finished his salah, and the Prophet ﷺ walked out of the haram. They go up to Abu Jahal later, and they said, what just happened? Chickened out? He says, I swear, by Allah wal Uzza, I swear by the two biggest idols that we worship. I was ready. I was there, I was willing. And I walked up, and I saw a huge camel. And he actually de- describes the camel that he said it was, it, it almost, it was so huge and so f- ferocious looking, it was more like a demon than a camel. It had sharp teeth. And as soon as I walked up to Muhammad and I looked up, it's like it came out of nowhere, like it came out of the, sh- out of the shade of the haram, out of the shade of the Kaaba. It's like it just came out of there, and just kept growing until it was like towering over me. And it was looking down at me with angry eyes, and it opened its mouth, and just looked down at me. And when I looked into its eyes, I was just filled with fear. And I froze, and I stepped away from there. And as I continued to re- retreat, pull away from there, the camel continued to kind of retreat back to wherever it originated from. Until I came and I sat down back in my place and I put the rock down and I just looked down because I couldn't look at that camel anymore because it was too terrifying. And everybody, Abu Jahl selling them this story. And while he's selling this story, everybody's just looking at each other like... Nobody else had the courage to actually take that type of, those, those type of drastic steps. Nobody else did. Nobody else was ignorant or stupid enough to do that. First of all, try to kill Muhammad Rasulullah Abu Jahl was the only one, so it's not like somebody else was going to say, forget him, he's obviously lost his marbles, I'll do it. Nobody else was stupid enough. So to begin with, everyone was kind of like, well, that kind of explains a lot. He's insane. That's why he was willing to kill Muhammad. But unfortunately, he can't control his own insanity. Now there's demon camels walking around the Kaaba apparently. The Prophet of Allah was brought news later on. O Messenger of Allah وسلم, Do you know they tried to kill you today? And he said, really? He said, who? He said, Abu Jahal. He had a big old rock. And he was willing. And he came. And his story is, everyone's talking about it. Apparently his story is that he basically walked up with this big rock was willing to smash your head, and then he says he saw some like huge demon camel that scared him away. The Prophet of Allah smiled and said that was Jibreel. I go and I pray with Jibreel. I go there every day, and I pray with Jibreel That's why the Prophet said, I have two ministers in the heavens and two ministers on the earth. Like I have two, you know, wazirs, like two... Uh, deputies in the heavens and two deputies on the earth. In the heavens it is Jibreel and Mikail, and on the earth it is Abu Bakr wa Umar. So Jibreel, the Prophet referred to Jibreel salam as his buddy, as his friend. Towards the end of the days of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ would recite the Qur'an every single, like muraja'ah. You know, hufad of the Qur'an, they recite the Qur'an to one another. The Prophet ﷺ would recite the Qur'an to Jibreel ﷺ, and Jibreel ﷺ would recite it back to the Prophet ﷺ. So he was his buddy. 
He was like his prayer buddy, his Qur'an buddy. So the Prophet ﷺ said, that was Jibreel. He was praying with me. But Jibreel must have saw Abu Jahl trying to pull some stupid stuff. And so Jibreel ﷺ decided to teach him a little bit of a lesson. And turned into a big demon camel. <laughs> Scared him away. Subhanallah. And so that basically was the that basically was the you know the aftermath of the acceptance of Islam by Umar radiallahu anhu and the courageous step by all the believers to go out there and pray in public in congregation at the Kaaba and what transpired after this what happened after this cuz you see now the quraysh has basically gathered back together reassessed their strategy and their approach they tried to make not one but multiple offers to the prophet sallallahu and then they basically or at least one of them abu jahl but the rest of them are also culpable in this the rest of them are are, are willing to protect him and support him that basically they even attempted an assassination of the prophet sallallahu and everything failed and what happened after this was basically one of the uh, one of the major events of the seerah of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and that was basically the boycott, the boycott that the people of Makkah, that the Quraysh enacted against the Prophet ﷺ, his family, his followers, and his supporters, and that's basically what we'll be talking about in the coming sessions. May Allah subhanahu wa taala. Uh, and and the last thing I wanted to mention, I almost forgot. After this incident where they actually, where they made all these offers, and the Prophet ﷺ rejected all these offers. And then Abu Jahl attempted, attempted an assassination, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Prophet ﷺ from this assassination attempt. The scholars mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed an ayah of the Qur'an to the Prophet ﷺ from Surah Al-Ma'idah, ayah number 67. Ya ayyuhar rasul, بَلِّغْ مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ يَا أَيُّهَا الرَّسُولُ Surah number 5, ayah number 67 يَا أَيُّهَا الرَّسُولُ O Messenger بَلِّغْ مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ Convey, deliver to its full extent in its entirety with total clarification deliver what has been sent down to you from your Lord because if you do not do everything and anything within your capacity, if you don't do everything that you're capable of in order to deliver this message, then you have not delivered the message. If you don't avail all your resources and opportunities, if you don't do whatever it is that you are capable of doing in order to deliver this message, then guess what? At the end of the day, you have not delivered the message. وَاللَّهُ يَعْصِمُكَ مِنَ النَّاسِ And as far as repercussions are concerned, as far as the fear of someone trying to kill you or attack you, or take drastic measures against you is concerned, وَاللَّهُ يَعْصِمُكَ مِنَ النَّاسِ Allah will protect you from people. And what's very beautiful about the wording of this ayah as well, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not say, وَاللَّهُ يَحْفِذُكَ مِنَ النَّاسِ Allah will protect you. He said, Allah, wallahu ya'asimuka. Al-isma in the Arabic language means to completely protect from anything and everything. 
Allah will completely, totally protect you from the people. That means any harm that would come to the Prophet ﷺ, any harm that did come to the Prophet ﷺ, was not those people harming him. That was only for the further development of the Prophet ﷺ. That was for the development of the iman and the tarbiyah and the, the continued spiritual progress of the believers. But as far as these people are concerned, Allah will completely protect you from the people. وَاللَّهُ يَعْصِمُكَ مِنَ النَّاسِ وَاللَّهُ لَا يَهْدِ الْقَوْمَ الظَّالِمِينَ Allah does not guide people who do wrong, who oppress, who transgress, who cross the line, who cross the limit. But as far as you're concerned, you do what you gotta do. بَلِّغْ مَا أُنْزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ And that's basically what we have to understand, what we have to learn from this. We have an iman, a faith, a system of beliefs, a core of beliefs that we live by. And we have to believe that. And we have to live according to that. And we have to share that with humanity. Of course, for us today, there's a lot of learning we have to do. Today, there is also the other side of the problem where we might be fully convinced of something that's actually not in line with Islam. That contradicts the Qur'an. We see that with crazy people in the world today who claim Islam, who go around harming innocent people, committing acts of aggression and violence against innocent civilians, claiming that to be an act of Islam, we obviously know that's incorrect. I'm not talking about that. But I am also saying that there is the other extreme a lot of times. Where we might live in fear of basic things such as believing in Allah. And believing in Muhammad Rasulullah. And living our lives according to the Qur'an. And living by the values that we believe in. And we also have to understand that if that in and of itself, when it comes to like Islamophobia, where they, if they had their way, we wouldn't even be Muslim. We would renounce our Islam altogether. That in the face of Islamophobia, in the face of people who just want us to not even be Muslim anymore, that in the face of that type of you know, challenge, we have to be as firm as we humanly possibly can. We have to stick by what we believe in. We have to stand up for what we believe in. And we have to understand that at the end of the day, we will put our trust in our faith, in our reliance in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah will protect us as He protected the Prophet ﷺ, as He protected the early believers, as He protected the ummah for 1400 years. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will continue to protect the ummah as long as He wills, as long as He sees fit. And we have to have our faith and our trust in that fact. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayka.